Well, as we continue <clears throat> working our way through 2 Peter, I ask that you turn this evening to chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11. You'll find that on um, page 1018 of your pew Bible, if you're using or utilizing a pew Bible. For context's sake, I'm going to start at verse 3. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform, confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Father, we ask that you would illumine our hearts and our minds. Now speak to us through your word. Amen. Well, if you've heard me speak for any length of time about my upbringing, you know that I was a special piece of work growing up. You probably heard me talk about my starting to cut classes when I was in the sixth grade and lying to my aunt who raised me about it. You might remember that I would talked about my teacher and principal applying their interpretation of Proverbs 30, 13, 24, spare the rod and spoil the child. Well, that behavior returned in full force uh, when I was in the seventh grade. In fact, I cut classes so badly that year that I was made to attend summer classes. <clears throat> now, I didn't know how that had affected my aunt, again, who raised me. Until one morning, about 5 o'clock in the morning, I got up to go to the bathroom. And she would normally get up that early in the morning because she would cook for her older brother who lived on the east side of the island. And then she would pass the center part of the island where we lived and go to the west side to work. And so she was there crying and bawling her eyes out, saying, I just don't know what to do. I've tried everything that I can. Again, many of you know I was a very, very much piece of work. But that particular thing, when I saw her crying that way, that profusely, and seeming to have no hope, it just did something to me. It impacted my life in ways that I can't fully describe. And again, I realized that she could have sent me back to my mother, or worse. I wish I could tell you I became a model student after that, but, but I didn't. I still wavered, still didn't apply myself to the degree of the potential I had, but it was my understanding of who my aunt was, what she wanted from me, and what would make her happy 
that provided the motivation I had to graduate from high school. I had no other motivation. I wanted to do it for her. What she did changed me and continues to serve as a motivating factor of how I am, how I aim to live my life uh, even today. And when I look at this passage, I see the same principle of recognition of self-orientation for the good of the source of my rescue. The God who created all things good and had no need of a wretch like me, like you, rescued me, rescued us from his just displeasure. Like the prodigal son, he put a robe of Christ's righteousness on our back, a covenant ring of authority on our finger, declaring us as his own and shoes on our feet, signifying our full restoration as sons and daughters of the everlasting Father. And after all that, he didn't just leave us to ourselves, but like the good father that he is, he did what, it, what, what, what anyone does when they're in a deep relationship. He revealed himself to us in the most intimate of ways, his ways, his dislikes, his love, and so much more. Wrapped up into all that is the same power that created the universe and all that was in it. The same power that parted the Red Sea and ultimately raised our Lord from the dead. That same power he gave to us, Boutris with his perfect love, did what love does. Gave, it gave. He gave us all that pertains to life that set us apart for his glory. All that empowers us to live reverently and to persevere in the midst of every and all things. And he didn't stop there, but then he gave us anchors that are grounded in his faithfulness. We call them promises. Again, this package of goods given through Jesus Christ has rescued us and has set us on a path to glory. And it is in light of that fact that Paul can say in the beginning of verse 5, for this very reason, because we who were dead in our sins were delivered from the corruption thereof because we who are in Christ Jesus are new creations, who are new creations, who have been given all we need that pertains to life and godliness because all these indicatives are right and true. Let us now pay heed to these imperatives, these commands, these exhortations. Paul, Peter, what would you have us to hear? What would the Holy Spirit have us to do in light of what we've just heard? I've broken this down into three headings. How now should we live? How now should we not live? And some words of encouragement. So first, how now should we live? In verses 5 through 7, Paul gives us seven qualities that we should strive to exhibit on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis. Read with me, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Supplement that which is given to you, he says, your faith. It is God who justified you. It is by grace through faith that you were saved, not anything of your own doing. You see, we were justified 
by Christ, through Christ. But now in our sanctification, in this part of our life where we're moving and working and, 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 and molding and having the Spirit mold us and submitting to his work in us so that we can be more like Christ, we are now supplementing our faith. And you know, when I look at this word supplement, it, it, it seems like it's a word that it just means like a little addition. You know, like I eat a lot of food, but I take a vitamin, you know, and they call them supplements. And the, the vitamin looks like this big, you know, compared to my food that looks like this. But that's not what's going on here. This word supplement is a huge word. It actually means in other areas to give abundantly, if you will, all right? And so it's not, it's not a word that is saying something small. It's something to furnish abundantly. We are to expand, expand is what it's saying here, maximum energy in this pursuit of the qualities that are here. We are to give it all that we have. We love God with all our heart, our minds, and our strength, and all of that strength is to be utilized in, in obtaining these particular qualities. And so he says to add virtue, add virtue to your faith. Virtue is a human disposition uh, toward good or moral excellence. Those who are in Christ strive, should be striving. We should be striving. If you are in Christ, you should be striving for moral excellence. It is, in fact, the same word that's translated as excellence in the end of verse 2 when it talks about God's glory and his excellence. Jesus articulated as much when he said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to orient ourselves towards that which is morally good and upright. And it starts with our mind. Paul in Philippians 4.8 writes in light of that fact saying, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things. Prassel. We are to strive, you see, to live in a manner worthy of the calling we have in Christ Jesus. We're not to walk around as those who are in the world, but we are to strive with all energy, expending all energy to live and emulate Christ. We are ambassadors. And please note, Christian virtue does not uh, refer to some abstract notion of, of proper behavior. There are a lot of people walking around who seem to be doing well in terms of behavior. But here we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. It's not just produced by human activity, but by divine power, or as Paul tells the Philippians, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we work with all our energy, all our strength, doing what? Submitting ourselves to that which the Spirit is doing and willing within us. We are working. The Spirit is working. It's synergistic when it comes to our sanctification. We work and we work with all our strength. And so we are doing that, being molded and shaped, being conformed to our Lord's image. Paul goes on to say that we should add knowledge to virtue. We live in a world that wants to call that which is good bad and that which is bad good. Where truth, as the prophet Isaiah said, 
of in those times and the same thing today. Truth has fallen in the street and appears to be down for the count in our culture. We, in fact, live in an environment that's perfect for the existence of the worldview known as moral relativism. That is, there is no true moral standard. What I believe to be okay, true, and right is just as or equally valid, right, or true as that which you believe. Moral relativism. That is the environment we live. This, again, is exactly the environment that was afoot in the book of Judges, where the knowledge of God had evaporated, and every man, as a consequence of that fact, did what was right in his or her own sight. Well, here the apostle is telling us, that is not the way of those who are to be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, they, we, are to have the knowledge that comes from the Spirit. Not worldly knowledge, but knowledge that comes from the Spirit. Jesus, in introducing the, this facet of the Spirit's ministry, said to his disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's special revelation given through our special relationship that we have with God. So God did not save us and then just leave us out in left field to figure out, to figure things out, to acquire just any and any type of knowledge. No, it's that which guides us into knowing him, what he likes, what he does not like, his purposes for us, and so on. It is given by the Holy Spirit through his word. Thus, we again hear the words, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. So the road to moral excellence goes through scripture and scripture alone. It is the wellspring of life. Thus the psalmist could rightfully say in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a lamp and a light to my path. After knowledge, we're told to add self-control, a quality directly communicated as a fruit of the spirit in the book of Galatians. In its most literal sense, it means holding oneself in to be self-restrained and self-disciplined. There are no external prompts here. You have to grab the reins. You have to make up your mind that you are going to submit to the spirit who has already given you what you need to exercise this quality. Truth be told, in many cases we give in to a lack of self-control. Not because we're ultimately unable to restrain ourselves, but because we love that which we indulge in more than everything else, including God. Every last one of us in here would have to admit that to be true in our lives at some point. We love indulging in the passion of our flesh and the bodily desires that constantly introduce themselves to our minds. I remember the secular song, this is 1972, this song, Me and Mrs. Jones. If you're not old enough, oh well. Particularly the lines that said, we got a thing going on. Listen to the rest of the line. We both know that it's wrong, but it's much too strong to let it go now. 
Well, that's how it is with me and ice cream and certain other type of food choices like fried chicken, you see. We got a thing going on. And then when that food type enters my mind, before you know it, I get in my car, the keys in the ignition, and the gear shift says ice cream and chicken. I don't know when that gear shift got down there, but it's there. And the car is operating on automatic, go there and get it, all right? So it's like a Tesla, it just goes. Whatever your vice is or may be, be reminded that we are to exert the energy to resist being controlled by stuff, by desires, by external forces. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, we find Paul saying, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. As Christians freed by Christ, we do not live in a space where we are legalistically told, don't do this and don't do that. But we do live in a space where we bring our bodies under subjection for the purpose of glorifying God and accomplishing the tasks that are set before us. Paul himself said, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. So we strive to walk in moral excellence, guided by knowledge, both things then resulting in a disciplining of desires, making them servants and not the masters of our lives. We are to master those things. They're not supposed to become our masters. We're then told to be steadfast. And by the way, at, at this point, you might notice that unlike some people, I'm not using the words add to. I'm not saying add this and add that as, as I introduce the next quality found in our text. And that's because I believe, as several of the commentators I've read here asserted, that Paul is not saying that these things must build upon each other and that one cannot exist without the other. Who among us, for instance, is really willing to assert that you cannot have brotherly affection without self-control? I myself would have absolutely no problem picking one, up, one of you up lovingly and uh, to indulge in a fiesta of chicken and fried chicken and ice cream with me. Wouldn't that be brotherly love in action? Believe me, if I share my fried chicken and ice cream with you, it's brotherly love. <laughs> Anyhow, we're told to make every effort to be steadfast. That is manifesting patience or endurance in doing what is right. When I hear this, it, my mind immediately wanders to Paul's exhortation found in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It wraps itself back to the beginning. It is the blessings granted through his divine power and his promises that motivates us and allows us, enables us to stand. In the midst of our standing, our enduring of all things, we strive to live lives that are truly devoted to God. That is godliness on, in, that, on, in, in that table. Piety, God-centered. Every aspect of our lives should be connected to a desire to please God and to bring glory and honor to his name. One tangible way to demonstrate this devotion is through our engagement with each other. Paul articulates that here as brotherly 
affection. The New Testament constantly communicates uh, the produce of this brotherly affection through the lens of the words one another. Those two words which come from one one word in the Greek connect themselves to all sorts of exhortations in Scripture, exhortations that well communicate what Paul is exhorting us to strive for here as we run the race set before us together. So there's a corporate aspect of of this running this race, and there's an individual and personal aspect of this, okay? But here are some of those one another's that I'm talking about that connects itself to brotherly love, right? Brotherly affection. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth and love to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual song, submit to one another, consider others better than yourself, look to the interests of one another, bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, Encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another to love and good works. Show show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourself in humility towards one another. Pray for one another and confess your faults to one another. That's just a sample of a hundred one another's that are in Scripture. There is a corporate sense of how we are supposed to encourage one another in this brotherly love. When we look at 1 Corinthians 13, commonly referred to as the the love chapter, we quickly realize that love in that context is a verb. It acts. And so it is here. We are to purposely foster an affection in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. An affection that reveals itself in the ways our brothers I just spoke of. Feelings and actions combined. Now, now look at the play of word here, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, it's the word agape. Here, brotherly affection is the one word Philadelphia where we get the word, the city of brotherly love, okay? And so you have here, the affection is Philadelphia, and you have here the word agape in the action. So both the, the affection and the doing is here. Brotherly affection with love. So question, are these qualities that I've covered manifesting in your life? Are you able to say with some measure of confidence that you are further ahead in your walk than you were several years ago? Can you say that these qualities are characterizing your existence more and more? Look at what Paul says in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to our next point. How now should we not live? The scriptures say that we are to examine ourselves. And who better to recognize the lack of effort they're putting forth to avail themselves of the means of grace that God has provided for them to grow in the knowledge of the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Who better to check their own heart's temperature 
when the issue of pleasing God and be, being devoted to him comes up. Paul says if these qualities in verses 5 through 7 are being manifested in your life, they'll keep you from being ineffective in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in the ability. And remember, as we grow in the knowledge of the Lord, we grow in fruitfulness on the earth in the way we are being used and served. Are we growing in the knowledge of the Lord? And now there's not always a one-to-one correlation when you look at things like this. But there's definitely one here. Here I'm reminded of Paul's admonition to the Galatians. He said, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16. The flesh, Paul says, that is the fallen human nature. Now listen to a description of some of the vices of the flesh that he goes on to mention in that same chapter. And I'm just picking those that are specific to the things that I just said when I talked about the love one another. Because these things that I'm mentioning now will go against the one one another's that I just talked about. He says, he mentions enmity, envy, strife, fits of anger, just angry, rage, going off, rivalries, competition, divisions. Are you given over to any of these things? Are you a person who loses your temper like this? Are you given over to these particular things? Do they characterize your existence more than the qualities Peter mentions in our passage? If so, Paul, in verse, he says you may have forgotten. In the next verse says you may have forgotten who you are. That's why that is. From moment to moment, you're getting angry, you're getting whatever, emotionally bent out of shape. Whatever the situation is because you have forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that you were delivered from death, from sin. And now you are in the kingdom representing God. And you are to live for him from moment to moment. Losing sight of who you are is not an option. You're not fighting the good fight of faith if that's where you are but have given in to the wiles of the world, the flesh, and the enemy. Here I'm reminded of Hebrews 12, 15, where the writer says, See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Then he follows that with, That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That is not where anyone who names the name of Christ should be. But if that describes you, If the table of vices I mentioned from Galatians is what characterizes you right now, I say to you as Peter asserts here, you've lost sight of your first love, the source of your strength. Remember, this starts off in three talking about we have been given divine through divine power, the ability to live. So you've lost sight of that fact, the source of your strength. You've given up that which is most profitable, the race that God has placed you in for his glory and your own good. You've been cleansed, but you're not owning it. Or maybe you have not been cleansed or in need of true repentance. Maybe you're not bearing fruit that says, hey, I am a child of God. In any case, let me encourage all of you, all of us. My last point, real, real short. It's a word of encouragement. In verse 10, Peter, based on what he had just shared, based on what he had just said, says on the basis of that, 
be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. We started out talking about the energy that you put into it. And the, the book of Proverbs 24, 16 says this, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. If these qualities are not what's characterizing your life and the other stuff is popping up more, but you belong to God, this particular passage, it has in it the fact that God is the one that's keeping you. Remember, he is the one. It is his divine power. So you have the ability to do what Proverbs 24, 16 says, and that is to get back up and get in the race. Strive to exhibit, to manifest, to live these qualities that you're exhorted to live right here. You might be saved, but your sense of assurance, the peace that has been promised to you, to those who are his, are tied into striving to walk in the manner that Peter has instructed here. We're talking about our assurance now. If you're living like hell, you're not going to feel like heaven. That's just the truth of the situation. It is when we grab hold of these qualities and live in them that that which we truly have, we start to experience and feel. Show me a person who is walking humbly and obediently before God. Show me a person who fears God, who loves him and wants to please him, even before pleasing themselves. Show me that person, and I will show you a person whose path to glory is paved with utmost confidence in Christ's finished work, not their ability. You heard me talk about my, my uh, elementary school experience, but do you know that the last, it took me until the last week of school to know that I was gonna graduate from high school? I tell some people this joke. Some people in my class, you know, my graduate class graduated magna cum laude, some graduated summa cum laude. I graduated, thank you, laude, you see. You see, and so God, by his mercy, extended that mercy to me. And so I live in the light of that particular mercy. And I strive to walk in these qualities, though I don't do so perfectly, not even close. And I exhort you as a brother and a sister in Christ that you do the same. That we hold hands together and we walk this way in we strive for these things for God's glory. It is my testimony that this church, that God has blessed this church, that the people of this church are walking for the most part that I can see with these things. Again, none of us are perfect, but it is evidence that God is moving us, he's keeping us, and he's carrying us all for his glory. But let us continue to strive to walk in moral excellence not legalistically, not abandoning the things of God in an antinomian manner, but let us submit to the Spirit of God as he moves us forward in these qualities. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we've now looked at these particular qualities uh, that you have called us to walk in, we understand again that you have saved us that it was you who reached out to us while we were still dead. While we were still sinners, you died for us and drew us to yourself. 
You placed your love upon us, and you've called us to be ambassadors to represent you well. So we pray, Lord, in that, in that sense that you would fill us to overflowing with your spirit so that we would be enabled to do that which you have commanded of us. The imperatives that we've seen in this passage, these are the very things that we want to live. We want to live out. We want to walk in this manner that pleases you. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've extended to us. But we cannot do this without your spirit. And so the very divine power that you've talked about here, we pray that you would empower us again to walk in it. Not just to walk, but to see it, to know it, and to walk in that which you have revealed to us. Would you do all these things to the praise of your glory? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.